Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. I feel like I'm losing my head a little bit, and the only reason I can come up with for why that is is just the sheer excitement of this new series. I am very excited to get into this series, this series in which we're going to be looking at two books of the Bible, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Two books of the Bible that chances are, whether you've grown up in the church or not, you haven't given a ton of time to. Because they're books of that sort of get lost, uh, they get lost in the history of God's people sometime between the the, the kingdom going south some 3,000 years ago and, and when the true king finally showed up in Jesus. But between those, the kingdom going south and the king finally coming, the coming of the true king in Jesus, there's this whole time period of history that's really worth remembering. It's really worth remembering because it was a time period when despite all the the, the headaches and all the heartaches, despite all the, the hardships of God's people, God was faithfully at work accomplishing his purposes and setting the stage for the coming of his son. Which isn't a bad message for today, right? Because we're now in another period of history when, though not in exile in the same sense, we're once again waiting for the coming of the king. We're once again waiting for Jesus to show up. And sometimes we need to be reminded that despite all the headaches and all the heartaches and all the hardships of life, God is in fact at this very moment setting the stage for just that. That God is at work patiently and providentially moving history forward for the accomplishment of his purposes. Not a bad message for today. And two of the books that recount part of that time period, again, are are the books that we're gonna be looking at in this series, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Two two books that, that, that would have made up a single scroll in the Old Testament and which we're gonna consider together in this series we're calling rebuild. As we look at God's work among God's people to to bring them back after 70 years in exile to God's land, to set the stage for the coming of God's king. God's work of reviving their hearts and restoring life. That's what we're going to be looking at in this series as a whole, beginning today as we look particularly at how God rebuilds identity, how God rebuilds identity as we look at Ezra chapters one and two. And like we mentioned last week, we have these books again on the, the table in the back, um, uh, this one is the, the book for, for Ezra. We have another one for Nehemiah that we'll put out as we get closer to that. And I'd invite you, if, if this would be a help to you, I'd invite you to grab one, um, make it your own. It's the, it's the text of the, of the passages on one side and a, a space for notes on the other, whether you're gonna do this in a, in a home group or do it during the sermon or use it on your own. This would be a great thing for you to have. We ask that you'd, you'd give, if you, if you have it, a $3 donation to cover some of the cost of that. It's 50% almost of what you'd get it um, online. Um, But if you don't have it, we'd like you to have it anyway. So so take one if it'll help you. We're all about growing you as a Jesus follower so you can become a better follower, growing other Jesus followers. This helps. It's all yours. But if you have a Bible, whether it's this or not, turn with me to this passage that we're going to be looking at today, to, to Ezra chapters 1 and 2. It's, it's sort of at the beginning half of the Bible, at least. You, you'll see books like First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, then Ezra. You hit Nehemiah, you're jumping the gun. Go back one book, and that's where we're going to start. And I'm going to begin by reading 
chapter 1. I'll touch on chapter 2 as we get into it a little bit later, but I want to start again with chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Let me read it. This is God's word. It says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says king of Persia, Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings and for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then arose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus, the king, also brought out the, the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the, the charge of Mithredath, the, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the, the prince of Judah, and, and this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, a, a thousand basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and a thousand other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we jump into this series today to, to look at a, a, a piece of the history of your people, a piece we often don't give time to, I, I pray that as we look and, and, and explore and, and, and ask questions and, 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 and dig in, I pray that, that seeing your work back then would Give us great confidence in your work today. That you likewise continue to, 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 to push history forward for the accomplishment of your ends. I pray we would put great confidence in you and that we would put great confidence in your son Jesus in whose name we pray. Have you ever lost your identity? I'm not talking about your license. I've done that plenty of times. I'm not talking about some other form of ID. I'm talking about your identity. Strange question, right? Except if you're like me and have done that. When I was a 15-year-old and was a reckless snowboarder and, and did not take to the slopes one day with any sense of caution. And me and my friend were there egging each other on and decided we were going to see all day, hit one jump consistently to see who could outdo the other. And I was on my way down the hill, so I'm told my friend on the ski lift, when I hit this jump better than this guy ever could. Problem was I turned over in the air, landed on my head, which was unhelmeted at the time, and lost my identity. I lost my 
identity. I couldn't find it. I was on the slope, didn't know who I was, where I was, what I was doing, and for about a week after, every memory that seemed to to stick for a moment was gone the next, I did not know who I was. Lost my identity. Which called for some pretty radical conversations with my parents, reminding me of of who I was, where I came from, what I was doing. Reminds me a little bit of what I think God is doing through this passage. Reminding, rebuilding, reestablishing in a way the identity of his people. See, they had gone through a period in their history that had gotten pretty rough. They had a long history in this particular land that that they considered their own, promised to them by God himself, all the way back to to old Father Abraham, some 1,500 years before, who had been called out of his land and and told that he would someday have this land, that, that after a time period of being out of that land, God would in fact bring his, his descendants back in the form of a nation and give it to them because the inhabitants there would no longer have a right to it. And they came in. And it was as God said. They came in and God established a a, a kingdom for them under a a king to whom God said, you will someday have a son who will reign in your place forever. Problem is, is that the son after that king wasn't the son they were looking for. And instead of leading them further into relationship with God, actually began the process of leading God's people away from him. So much so that God eventually vacated the premises and then sent back to have them evicted. Which landed them in two subsequent exiles, part of the kingdom in the Assyrian exile and this part of the exile which we're looking at today in Babylonia. In a foreign land under a a foreign ruler occupied by foreign powers, forgetting in many ways who they were and what they were doing and what they were supposed to be about. Well, God, in many ways, in this passage, is reminding them of what they forgot reminding them of their identity, rebuilding their identity. And what we're gonna see, what I want you to see as we walk through these two chapters, these first two chapters of the book of Ezra, is that when God rebuilds the identity of his people, when he reestablishes and reminds them of their identity, it is an identity founded on his word built around his presence and constructed by his grace. Founded on his word, built around his presence and constructed by his grace. First, that it's an identity founded on his word, which is the point of verse one when it says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. That it was then, it says, that that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. A very mundane kind of thing to do, a, a memo to the rest of the kingdom, but will be very important as we get further along in the story. But this is what the Lord is doing, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Because when God rebuilds the identity of his people, when he reestablishes and reminds them of it, as you may need to be reminded today, 
he does so. That identity, he does that. He rebuilds the identity, reestablishes the identity, reminds his people that their identity, the identity of his people, is always founded on his word. That's where the building project begins. Why? Because it's in his word that God signs on the dotted line. It's in his word that God commits himself contractually to the welfare of his people. And he does it in ink. Right? Because the Bible isn't really what a lot of people think it is. It isn't really just a collection of rules where, where, where God lays out what we're supposed to do for him. That's in there. That's, that, that's part of the contract. But primarily, the Bible isn't about what we do for God, but about what God's committed to doing for us. Primarily, it's a record of God's promises. It's God's promissory note. Promises on which the identity of God's people are founded. God's promises written down and recorded in his word so that no matter how hard things get or how, how many headaches you got or, or how many heartaches, how deep they go, you can bank on God. The Bible is God's promissory note, his contractual agreement with his people, his commitment to, to see the, the, the building project through, which is why whether back in the Old Testament or now under the new, the identity of God's people has always been founded on God's word because it is the record, that word is the record of God's promises to his people. But let me clarify that, that, that when I say promises, I'm not really talking about some long list. Because when you boil it down, there's really only two. There's really only two. Two promises God makes to God's people. Not that they aren't reiterated in a number of different ways or supported by other sub-promises. But essentially, essentially, when you boil it down, that there are only two. The old and the new. An old promise or an original promise about the coming of a king. And a new promise about that king coming again. That's what the Bible is about. An old promise about the coming of a king and a new about his coming again. These are the two promises of God, which are what the, the Bible's two testaments are about. Testaments from the Latin testamentum, meaning will or testament or promise of God. The coming of God's king and his coming again. So, that to be a part of God's people in the Old Testament meant that you were a person, a people, waiting for God's promised king from the very beginning. It's the first promise that one would someday show up to crush the serpent's head. Clarified down the line of who that would be, the lineage he would come in, but that one would show up to crush the serpent's head. The coming of the king. To be part of the Old Testament people of God was to be part of a people waiting for God's king. Just like being part of God's people in the New Testament, under the New Testament, means we're now waiting for the king to come again. And every other promise in the Bible somehow relates to one of the two, including the promise that was spoken by the mouth of this guy named Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet who, who lived a lifetime before the book of Ezra picks up. And the word of the Lord spoken by his mouth, when it refers to the, the word of the Lord spoken by his mouth, probably refers to his entire prophetic ministry. 
But let me just draw your attention to one particular part of his prophecy, perhaps, perhaps the best known part, found in Jeremiah chapter 29. And look with me for a moment, if you, if you could turn there, at verses 10 to 14. Just listen to what God says. God's just told his people that he's sending them into exile at the, at the hand of the, the Babylonians, just like he had, he had sent their, the other tribes, the northern part of the kingdom, um, at the hands of the Assyrians. He, he's telling this to his people for their failure to follow him. But now God says this, again in verse 10. Yet, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, for for peace, and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes, gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. A promise on which, according to the opening of Ezra, the identity of God's people was built. The fulfillment of which, 70 years later, God used to rebuild that identity here. Promise made, promise kept. But a promise, and don't miss this, a promise that was itself just part of God's bigger promise about the first coming of that coming king. Which is why just a a chapter later in Jeremiah, God turns from talking of his people coming back to talking about the coming of the king. That that, that when they return, he says this in chapter 30, they shall serve the Lord their God and, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them, that their prince, he says, shall be one of themselves, their ruler shall come out of their midst. And you shall be my people, he says to them, and I will be your God. And to this, the point is this. That just like for the the people in Jeremiah's day, our identity as the people of God now is founded on God's word because our identity is wrapped up in God's promises. This is the point, guaranteed by our promise-keeping God. But we would do well as we comb through the pages of the Bible. We would do well to, to read the little promises in light of the big ones. Because if the little promises are distracting us from rather than focusing us on the big ones, the big ones that they're they're supposed to be driving us toward, we will very likely end up undoing the very promises we're hoping in and cracking the foundation on which they're built. Which just as an aside, if you look around a little bit at the the Christian milieu today, just as an aside, this is what happens when when even the the promise in Jeremiah about having a hope and a future, which is very much looking forward to the coming of Jesus, does when it as much leads people away from him as it was intended to lead them toward. Even though God, for his part, did exactly what he said he was going to do. If you dig in, right, to those verses, God does exactly what he intends. He did it. He brought them back, right? Seventy years later, I'll bring you back for the purpose of the plan for your shalom, your peace, and your your, your well-being. For the purpose, not that the bringing you back is the accomplishment of the plan. It's just one step. It's just one step along the way. 
the welfare of the people is wrapped up in the coming of the king. It's just one little promise on the way to fulfilling the great big one. Yet we've made, right? Haven't we made? We've made the whole thing about us. Just taking this as one example of a a promise in the Bible that we've ripped out of its context and and instead of making it about God like it is, we've made it about us. We've plastered it on our coffee cups, even the coffee cups that you can see it on the inside so that when you're drinking, you don't even need to look at the out. You can just see it staring at you. We've made it about us. But that's not what God meant. That's not what God meant. And your misunderstanding, the misunderstanding of God's promises isn't something you can bank on if you get it wrong. It's a promissory note that you can't cash. Which is why, even on our day, even this year, Even this year, we've heard two of the biggest names in the name it and claim it perversion of Christianity begin to backpedal on the prosperity gospel they spend their whole lives preaching. Have you noticed that? Back in January, Joyce Meyer saying, I got it out of balance. I had it out of balance. And as recently as two days ago, Benny Hinn, the most popular self-help prosperity gospel preacher in the world today. Have you seen it? Saying, I got it wrong and I think the Holy Spirit is ticked off. Now, I'm not saying they've arrived. I'm not even saying it's real. But it's interesting that even they can recognize that what they've been preaching for years is bankrupt because they've taken the little promises of God, made like they're the big ones, and left the big ones behind rather than reading the little ones in light of the big because it all really is about the big. And it matters why. Because what we need is the big one. What we need is Jesus. And, and if, you're, if we're supposed to be a people founded on God's word and the promises that word records, but instead we twist those promises into something that they're not, we risk undoing the very promises we're hoping in and cracking the foundation on which they're built. God rebuilds the identity of his people. It's an identity founded on his word. Second, it's an identity built around his presence. It's an identity built around his presence. And for the Israelites back then, quite literally, it was a building project, a real building project, to to, to build for the the God of heaven, verse 2 says, who who had at his disposal all the kingdoms of the earth to build him a house at Jerusalem to return to their land under the protection of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to rebuild, verse 3, the house of the Lord, that they would once again be a people built around his presence. And God's presence, if you know the story, had been at the center of who they were ever since God brought them to that land so many years ago. When a man named Moses led them out of slavery and they picked up God's presence on a mount called Sinai. That's why they stopped there. Get God's rules, get God, right? And then travel on. Where they picked God's presence up at this mount called Sinai where where God gave them the instructions for building his first house, which back then was more like an RV. It was a mobile house. It would go with them. And God told them, God told them that they were going to be a nation of priests, take God's presence with them and they would be a nation of priests, which meant that they were going to stand between. They were going to 
they were going to mediate to an unholy world the presence of this holy God, a nation of priests. Which means that they were going to be in the business of making introductions, sort of like the butler, right? They were going to come to the door, God's front steps, and walk you in to, to the drawing room. It's a little more than that, a little, little different, but sort of like being a butler, right? They were going to be God's butler. But so it was from the, that mobile home to the building of the first temple. God's people built around God's presence. Up until things started to go south, and eventually, like I said before, things got so bad that, 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 that you know, you, you, you would have thought they needed to, to be introduced to this God themselves until God got so fed up with their disregard for his house, their disregard for his holiness, their disregard for him, that God, what? Vacated the premises, sent back to get them evicted. But look at this. Look at this. When God's fixing to, to bring them back and, and God stirs up the heart of Cyrus, uh, this pagan prince to do it, What's at the heart of it? That they'd return, again, verse 2, in order to build God a house at Jerusalem. This is the purpose behind it. At Jerusalem, at Jerusalem, at Jerusalem, to build God his house. That they'd once again be a people built around God's presence. Because this, is, this isn't some side dish in the relationship with God. This isn't, this isn't just another pot at the potluck. This isn't just picking a dessert on the back table. This is the main thing. You don't get this, you don't got anything. This is what it's all about. That they'd return to build the house of God, to have God among them, because this is the very heart of it. And you're not a part of the people of God without God's presence. Because no matter how many licks it takes to get to the center, this is still the Tootsie Roll center of the Tootsie Pop. This is it. This is what it's all about. Because founded on God's word, God's people are to be built around his presence. And if you're going to be part of this, that means that your life, as a, as a part of the people of God, likewise has to be built around God's presence. That you no longer get priority when it comes to rearranging the furniture. That your time, your talents, your treasures are now meant to, to, to serve a single purpose because you now have the privilege of being God's butler. You're now invited to be a servant of the king. Now, if that's too much for you, let me just remind you that there are butlers in this world that live a lot better than you do. Highest paid butler in the world right now makes $2.2 million a year. And with God, it is so much more. You have been invited to be a servant of the king. Because what? Better to be a butler in the house of God than a king somewhere else. But notice that while promised in God's word and the heart of what it means to be God's people, uh, God's presence is not something we can just go after for ourselves. Go get it however we want. God's got to do it in his time, in his way, because it's his presence. And, and he's the one who makes having it possible. The Israelites couldn't do anything to speed up their return or even guarantee their return. And Cyrus apparently couldn't do anything to slow it down. In fact, both pagan prince and God's people alike are completely at the mercy of God. 
So Cyrus is stirred to, to make a proclamation. He's stirred to do it back in verse 1. And the Israelites then are stirred to respond in verse 5 because when God rebuilds the identity of his people, that identity is not only founded on his word, not only built around his presence, it is finally constructed by his grace. It is constructed by his grace. And here, let me just quickly point this out to you in the text, beginning with the fact that God's people were ever given a promise of return, which is something we tend to lose sight of because of verses like Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plastered on our coffee cups but entirely removed again from the original context because the book of Jeremiah, if you get into it, it is actually quite a depressing book. Emmett's middle name is Jeremiah, so months ago, I think I already told you this, months ago we decided we were gonna read through this thing. So we've been doing that every week or two weeks. We did a ton when we were over in, we were, did a ton while we were over in the Netherlands together trying, trying to get ahead of this because Jeremiah is such a depressing book. This is not something expected. This is not something that, 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 that comes on and you're just saying, yeah, we knew it was coming. Even Jeremiah is surprised when God tells him, hey, go buy a field in Israel, in Judah. And he says, God, real estate ain't great right now. It's not, that, it's not a real good time to invest. We're losing all this, remember? And you're the one who's doing it. Why would I buy a field? To which God says, listen, I got a plan. It's going to get worse, but things are going to get better on the other side, even though you don't deserve it, and neither do the people you serve. Totally out of left field. Because the promise of a return, it's an absolute grace. The promise of a return, you can also see it in the prompting of Cyrus. That didn't need to happen. Because not only did God get them back, God got his people back to the land under the protection of a pagan king. And don't give Cyrus too much credit here. He, uh, he sounds real good, right? The God of heaven who has all control of the kingdoms of the earth commissioned me to, to build him a house. Don't give him so much credit, but because we know from history that this proclamation is really just a copy and paste job. He, he did uh, this with most of his people taking over from the Babylonians. He didn't want them in his land. He was sending them back home. He thought this was a better way to govern. So he had a copy and paste job to the God, to the God, to the God of the, what's his name? Yeah, that God, send him back. He's the God of heaven. And when you go back and you build his temple, make sure you pray for me. If there's anything in it, at least I want you praying for me or at least thinking that you're praying to him about me so that you don't run the other direction, right? This is a copy and paste job, and yet God, in his grace, uses this, this, this ruler's rigid heart to get his people back like he said he was gonna. What a grace. Working in history, moving history along to accomplish his purposes. And the promise of a return and the prompting of Cyrus. What about the provision of goods above and beyond, right? And this is really the, the emphasis of verse 4 all the way to the end of the chapter, even through to chapter 2. I find it really interesting because where verses 1, 2, and 3, you may know, are taken pretty much verbatim, there is one word difference, taken pretty much verbatim from the book of Second Chronicles, the last words of that book are the opening words of the book of Ezra. This last line of the proclamation found in verse four is only here. It had no place in the book of Chronicles, which means that this is really one of the emphases that the author wants you to see because the difference is what makes it unique. This idea that God provided for his people, the, the accomplishment of his purposes through that, through at least in part the hand of his enemies, 
just like he had done when the Israelites left Egypt some thousand years before. This becomes the emphasis of the rest of chapter 1. From the aid offered in verse 6, and Cyrus's own bringing out of the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away into exile, like that word vessels, brought the vessels back out, sent them back, counted and accounted for. It's just one more layer of God's grace. The promise, the prompting, the provision, but also God's protection. God's protection and the protection of the vessels. The vessels that were used in the temple rituals. God said, I got a way of doing this and I'm going to get it back to the way I wanted it. Same ones that had been carried away so long ago, now sent back. God didn't even have to pay the shipping and handling. But also, look at the protection of God's people. That they were still around to be stirred up. That didn't have to be. The northern kingdom is no, no longer to be seen. But they're still around. And what's more, that they actually made it back. They actually made it back after that harrowing journey of 900 miles across mostly arid desert. You die in places like that. You don't survive. And here they are, a bunch of soft feet, making their way back, and God brings them right to it. And you see God's protective hand, especially in the list of chapter 2. This list, verse 1, of the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles. We're just going to take 15 minutes and read through this list. We're actually not. But you can read through it before, later. You can read through it later. Well, I know it might put you to sleep, but you've got to understand, what doesn't mean anything to you would have been extremely important for the people it was written to. What would put you to sleep at night would keep an Israelite up all the time searching for themselves, their, their family name. And you can know that a little bit, right? We knew this this summer when Kath and the kids and I ended up standing on Ellis Island on a whim. We went to Ellis Island Statue of Liberty and standing there. And those lists became extremely important to us when we were looking for family names. Because a list, that doesn't mean a thing to you because you don't understand it may very well mean life to the one who does. And for the Israelites who came back, it meant just that. It meant just that. Somewhat like another list that's going to be read out someday, that another one of those sub-promises that when the king does return, he's going to bring with him open books that you're going to be interested in, whether your name is there or not. But look at the protection, bringing them back when they could have disappeared from the face of the earth. The protection, the, 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 the provision, the prompting, the promise, the grace of God pushing history along, constructing the identity of his people just recognize that it's all part of the proof that in rebuilding the identity of God's people, it was an identity constructed by that grace, just as it was an identity built around his presence and an identity founded on the promises of his word. First promise that was fulfilled in the coming of his son when God rebuilt the identity of his people for good. With, with a grace that we had never seen. With, with a presence that we had never known when God's word walked among us. The fulfillment of a first promise in the coming of Jesus and a second promise that will one day be fulfilled when he returns. And I just want to end with three questions. 
Three questions. As we get going into this series, as we dive into this book that is going to raise our hopes and shatter our expectations. As we look to God to, to do with us what He's done before, to revive our hearts and restore life. Just three questions to start. First, is your identity founded on God's Word? On the promises that God has made and the promises He's already in part fulfilled? Do you trust Him? Not not only when life is going well, but trust Him when it's falling apart at the seams. Do you take great comfort in the fact that he's already declared the end from the beginning and holds history in his hands and will accomplish his purposes? Or is showing up to a, a Bible church just a nod to what should be or would be or might be somewhere else but isn't? story like Ezra is meant to stoke that faith because God already did it once, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, and did it again in Jesus when the king finally came, and will do once more when he returns. Is your identity founded on God's word, and, and God's word not as you would have it? Not as you would twist it for yourself, but as it is, with all the little promises driving toward the big ones and all the plans God knows and has for you being plans of you living under his son and living forever. Is your identity founded on God's word? That's the first question. Second question is, This is your identity built around God's presence with God at the center and and you as the servant, not the other way around. Have you found God's presence in Jesus and are you living to make that presence known to others? Or are you living like God isn't even around? still rearranging the furniture, however you want, however it pleases you. And the way you spend money or spend your time and how you treat others or how you treat yourself and your sexuality and your work ethics, making God the butler and you his master. And it doesn't matter if you're paying him 2.2 million dollars if that's the relationship it's the wrong way around who's calling the shots is your identity built around god and lastly is your identity constructed by god's grace by an experience and a stewarding of a life that you don't deserve And you might say, absolutely, I don't deserve any of it. Didn't deserve the promise, didn't deserve the provision, certainly don't deserve the protection. Life constructed by grace. Let me just push back on that for a moment. Because the question isn't just about experiencing grace, it's about being transformed by it. And here's what I mean. This wasn't the first time that the Israelites had been brought back from slavery somewhere else to salvation in the promised land. This was part of their story to begin with, right? This is part of their history. And similar to here in Ezra, the first time that happened, they left with the goods of the Egyptians. Do you remember that part of the story? They left plundering their captors plundering the Egyptians. But somewhere between slavery in Egypt and salvation in the promised land, many of them proved that God's grace hadn't changed them one bit because the gold and the silver of the Egyptians 
was supposed to be used to build God's house. But instead, much of it ended up in a golden calf. It's not just about whether you experienced grace. It's about whether you've been transformed by it. And if I could just pull the curtain aside for a moment and say the burden of my own heart, what I wrestle with most with Catherine at night, what I stay away most about at night is whether that's true for myself and for you. Of not only whether we hold grace high, but of whether that's been driven deep. And it is the most heartbreaking experience in life to know that for yourself and to see someone else who doesn't know it for them. Do you know, has your life been constructed by Has it been transformed by the grace of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray as we dive into these books that some of us maybe didn't even know existed before today. I pray that looking at the journey of your people and your work in and through them, I pray that we would likewise be stoked in our relationship with you. And I pray as our hopes are raised, but then our expectations shattered, that it would all the more focus our attention on your son Jesus, in whose name I pray. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.